You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, February 17th, 2022. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, I go over campus news with details on CSU's newly approved $640,000 tuition assistance grant for summer classes. I go over new updates in COVID-19 statistics and policies, and we hear from the Kendall Reagan Nutrition Center about diabetes prevention. After that, Coda goes over details on a new action from the Department of Education to forgive some student loans. Then we hear from Blast and Scrap through a quick feature of the Live and Local podcast. Then Eliza Droder goes over CSU Athletics and we hear from the Play Like a Girl podcast. To conclude today's show, Coda explains some updates on technology with information on a Spotify acquisition. Let's move right into campus and local news. On to campus news for Thursday, February 17th. Tomorrow night, Colorado State University's women's basketball team will be taking on the University of Wyoming. The game will be held at Moby Arena at 6 p.m. Make sure to keep listening for Eliza Drotar's updates on all CSU sports later in the episode. In-state CSU students who are looking to enroll in summer classes can receive more support than ever after CSU's Board of Governors approved a $640,000 one-time need-based financial aid. Nearly 1,000 students will receive help from CSU's tuition assistance grant, whereas only 600 students were able to receive this in the past two summers. According to Allison Sill of CSU Source News, The university has expanded their summer support to help low-income students who may exhaust their financial resources during the fall and spring semesters. CSU will be offering more than 1,700 sections with varying lengths and terms this summer. For more information on how to register, visit source.colostate.edu. Joe Blake, a Chancellor Emeritus of the CSU system and an advocate for higher education in Colorado, died on Tuesday. According to Karen Neth of CSU Source News, former Governor Bill Owens appointed Blake to serve on the Board of Governors in 2006. Blake then became the CSU system's first full-time chancellor in 2009. Blake helped shape policies that got the CSU system through the Great Recession, and those same policies have helped CSU through the COVID-19 pandemic. CSU President Joyce McConnell sent out an email on Tuesday describing Blake's accomplishments and promising to share tributes to his legacy. He created a critical strategic plan that supported the successful launch of CSU Global, which is the United States' first fully online public university. Now, on to local news. On Tuesday afternoon, a fire broke out at a housing unit near the intersection of Prospect Road and South Shield Street. Pooter Fire Authority reported there were no injuries. Visit collegian.com for more information. The city of Fort Collins is considering new regulations for water and highway projects, according to J.C. Marmaduke of the Coloradoan. Decision makers are looking to the public for input on potential 1041 regulations. 1041 regulations are a type of local regulation for development projects happening within the city. According to Marmaduke in an October 2021 article, these regulations are, quote, provide an avenue for municipalities and counties to have more stringent oversight of certain types of state interest projects, end quote. On Wednesday, February 23rd, two virtual public hearings will take place. The City of Fort Collins will post the Zoom links to rcity.fcgov.com slash 1041-regulations. 
A moratorium for highway and water projects is in place until the end of December of 2022 when new regulations are adopted. Fort Collins City Council met on February 15th to pass the first reading of changes made to the disposable bag ordinance. The plastic bag ban effect will take place on May 1st. Paper bags will now be 10 cents instead of 12 cents, and 60% of the paper bag revenue will go to the city, while 40% goes to grocers. According to Austria Cohn of the Collegian, another topic discussed at the meeting was an ordinance that allows Fort Collins residents to apply for permits to request relief from the Occupancy Ordinance Land Use Code. This code will help host people impacted by the Marshall Fire in Boulder County. Fossil Ridge High School student Lucy Bell broke Missy Franklin's record in the 200-yard individual medley last night. Missy Franklin broke the record for the 200 IM a decade ago, and Bell set that new record by just milliseconds. According to Chris Abshire of the Coloradoan, Bell then won her third straight 5A 100-yard freestyle title just half an hour later, with a time of 49.07 seconds. Bell is heading to Stanford as one of the most decorated swimmers in Colorado's history. The Fort Collins team finished ninth in the 5A Swimming and Diving Championships. Thanks for listening to my newscast for February 17th. Make sure to always tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. I'm Ellie Shannon, and you're listening to KCSU on 90.5 FM. At Colorado State University, the women's rugby team competes in the Mountain West Rugby Conference, working to establish themselves as leaders on and off the field. Women of all different backgrounds, experience levels, and interests are welcome to join the CSU women's rugby team. Practices and home games are held on the IM fields. To get involved and define the team's game schedule, go to csuwrugby.com. back on the Rocky Mountain Review. If you missed any part of Ellie Shannon's campus and local news, check out our podcast version on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen back. I'm Kuta Babcock, and this is COVID-19 Updates for Thursday. Colorado State University reports around 8,900 total cases of COVID-19 since the university began recording cases in May 2020. Wednesday, CSU reported three new cases among students and two new cases among faculty and staff. Larimer County reports a high level of community transmission based on Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidelines. The county reports over 74,000 cases and 465 total deaths due to COVID-19. Larimer County's seven-day case rate sits at 235 cases per 100,000 residents, a steep decrease from the over 1,000 cases per 100,000 residents case rate that the county reported in mid-January. 
40 COVID-19 patients receive treatment in area hospitals and intensive care units that are 100% utilization based on typical care levels. About 8% of all COVID-19 tests taken in Larimer County come back positive. Due to high rates of transmission, public health officials recommend the following precautions. Get vaccinated and boosted against COVID-19 if you have not already. Wear masks indoors when people from outside your household are present. Masks should fit snug and KN95 masks are especially recommended. Monitor yourself for COVID-19 symptoms and stay home even if your symptoms are mild. Get tested immediately if you notice any symptoms of COVID-19. If you test positive, seek treatment and isolate. Postpone all indoor gatherings and in the case that it cannot be postponed, require that all attendees be vaccinated. Consider limiting the number of households present and move activities outside if possible. Employers are encouraged to promote remote work options for employees when possible. The county also reminds residents to continue practicing social distancing. The state of Colorado reports just under 1.3 million cases of COVID-19, along with over 12,000 deaths. 4.7 million people have been tested for the virus that causes COVID-19, and around 60,000 people are hospitalized due to COVID-19 in Colorado. 10.2 million total vaccine doses have been administered in the state, and 3.9 million Coloradans are fully immunized against the virus that causes COVID-19. The CDC reports over 77.9 million cases of COVID-19 in the United States, along with over 923,000 Americans dead due to COVID-19. Around 81% of eligible people received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, but community transmission remains high nationwide. I'm Cutta Babcock, and that's all for Tuesday's COVID-19 updates. Information from this segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, CNBC, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. If you are a student, staff member, or faculty member at CSU, visit covid.colostate.edu to submit vaccine information, schedule saliva screenings, and get the most recent information on COVID-19 at the university. Up next, we're hearing from Kaylin Garcia with the Kendall Reagan Nutrition Center about local diabetes prevention programming. I'm joined today by Kaylin Garcia from the Kendall Reagan Nutrition Center at CSU to talk about diabetes prevention at the university. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So before we get started, could you tell us a bit about the Kendall Reagan Nutrition Center and what you all do for the CSU community? Yeah, so the Kendall Reagan Nutrition Center is a branch of CSU's Food Science Human Nutrition Department. So we are like an outreach branch here on campus. We're located in the Health and Medical Center. So we're, we're a full service clinic, meaning that we offer things ranging from nutrition counseling to group programs and cooking classes. We're also an outreach center, so we do quite a bit of programming and presentations and collaborations with community folks. And then we're a practicum center. So uh, students who are in the food science, human nutrition, or health and exercise science departments have an opportunity to take our counseling practicum course where they can get integrated practical experience working with our team of dietitians, shadowing counseling appointments, et cetera. And so something that's surprising to a lot of people is that, yes, we are located on campus and a lot of who we serve are CSU employees and CSU students, but we actually serve the entire community. We are uh, a service center that actually provides nutrition counseling and group programs for anyone in Northern Colorado. And can you explain a bit about what the diabetes prevention program offers and what else the nutrition center offers people who might be concerned about prediabetes or diabetes in general? So the National Diabetes Prevention Program, first and foremost, it's considered a lifestyle change program. It's it's not a weight loss program. 
And so lifestyle change, we're talking about behavior change. Behavior change is really hard. And that's why this program is designed to last the duration of a full year. So there are actually 26 classes that span over the course of a full year. The emphasis of this program is on group support and education. And so as the coach, I come to class with a topic and topics vary from being more active, eating more healthy foods, meal planning, troubleshooting barriers, stress management, sleep hygiene, troubleshooting, eating out. And a lot of it is facilitating conversation among the group. And then there's like an active goal setting component toward the end of class as well. So outside of the National Diabetes Prevention Program, that's just one service that we offer for folks who have pre-diabetes, but we also offer individual one-on-one counseling. So we're a team of three registered dietitian nutritionists. And so a lot of individuals do like the idea of group support and and working with peers, Um, but some folks prefer to get more of that one-on-one individual nutrition care where they would sit down with a dietitian for 30 to 50 minutes at a time and just get really like customized, tailored um, troubleshooting and coaching. All right. And then for those who might be curious about the program or any of these other options, can you explain what makes this program stand out from others, either within the Kendall Reagan Nutrition Center or nationally in terms of the guidelines it follows and its structure? Yeah. So, you know, in comparison to maybe some other like health or weight loss kind of programs out there, DPP is different because of that emphasis on it being a year long. It's not a quick fix kind of diet program. And that's what really makes it unique is that there's not really that many lifestyle behavior change programs out there that last an entire year. And that the focus is on that peer support with coaching. It's not show up and get an hour lecture PowerPoint. It's it's very um, interactive. We use a Centers for Disease Control curriculum, and we're actually like recognized by the CDC for having an effective program. So it is a research-based, evidence-based program, whereas there's a lot of health programs out there that don't have that research backing. The structure is weekly classes for the first four months, which builds a lot of momentum, and then we transition into bi-weekly. So Folks have a little bit more time to practice their goals. And then we do transition into monthly sessions. And then something else that's different because it is an evidence-based program. There's so much research, you know, anytime we're running a program, we are collecting data and it goes into the giant database. And at this point, we can say that this particular program and folks who with diagnosed diabetes who enroll in this type of structured year-long lifestyle program can cut their risk for developing type 2 diabetes in half. All right. And then as diabetes continues to impact millions of Americans each year and has remained in the top 10 causes of death for Americans, why is it important that the Nutrition Center offers a prevention program? So first and foremost, it is KRNC's sole mission to enhance the health of our community. And pre-diabetes is actually really common. So it's just one of our ways of enhancing health in our community. We actually joined the National Diabetes Prevention Program effort in 2016 and have since run about 16 cohorts through this year-long program. We we have a big reach with this program, and fortunately, part of offering this program is just raising awareness about how common prediabetes actually is. 
it's surprising to a lot of people that actually one in three adults actually has prediabetes, which is about 88 million people in uh, America. And it's important that we offer this program too, just because there's not a lot of awareness about the risks associated with prediabetes itself. You know, often folks think that the pre part means that it's, it's maybe not as concerning as type two diabetes or even type one diabetes, but prediabetes in and of itself is an independent risk factor for some serious health conditions like stroke. And the good news about that is that prediabetes is reversible with lifestyle changes. And and we can't say that about many health conditions out there. With a lot of health conditions, we can put them into remission, but to actually reverse a health condition, we don't reverse type two diabetes even. We can put it into remission, but we don't cure it per se. But with prediabetes, we, we actually can do that. And so we just feel like as a clinic that we have a huge opportunity here to, you know, turn the course and, and get folks feeling empowered about taking charge of their health. And and so diabetes prevention program is one way we can do that. All right. And then many college students, whether they're pre-diabetic or not, experience a lot of issues with getting enough of the right type of food, um, especially while eating in the dining halls where there's a lot more starch options than let's say like healthy, tasty vegetables. So how do you think this might impact diabetes development, especially for those who might come to CSU already with pre-diabetes? Yeah. So Diet certainly is is one factor to consider with prediabetes and in diabetes, but there are so many other factors beyond diet alone. And the good news too about prediabetes, there's a lot of flexibility for eating with diabetes and prediabetes. So generally the emphasis is on eating more whole minimally processed foods like fiber-rich whole grains and vegetables and beans and healthy fats while also being mindful of having large portions of highly processed foods. And I think CSU is actually pretty unique in that our dining halls are a bit more progressive than a lot of other universities in that nowadays we are seeing a lot more of these bars and meals, um, hot meals and things that are having an emphasis on having more of these whole minimally processed fiber-rich foods. So yes, certainly there's still a lot of access to more of the highly processed foods and certainly higher starch foods and fried and fatty foods, but there's a lot more access to these whole minimally processed nutrition foods in our dining halls these days. All right. And then what does this program offer both students who might struggle staying healthy during the academic year, as well as just like working adults in our community who might not have a ton of time on their hands? So first and foremost, I would say structure. So having a a time and place to be each week can be really helpful for making progress. Also, accountability is huge. So not only accountability to the different participants and team members, but also coach accountability. Support, you know, behavior change is hard and we don't do it alone. So having coach support and having peer support is huge. And honestly, it's fun. So we do a lot to, to try to infuse the classes to not just make it so serious and gloom and doom, but rather we do try to bring elements of fun into each class too. All right, and then just in case people are joining us halfway through this interview, who is eligible to join this diabetes prevention program and are there any restrictions? Yeah, so really anyone 18 and older, folks with actual diagnosed diabetes would probably benefit from some of our other programs like our diabetes management programs or even individual nutrition counseling. 
So if, if someone does have a, di- a diagnosis of diabetes, then we would recommend that they consider some of our other services rather than the diabetes prevention program. Other restrictions. So we just kicked off this year long program the last week of January, but technically enrollment is open through this next Thursday, February 24th would be the last day to drop in until we offer our next round. And then anyone affiliated with CSU can join with discounts, but this program is also open to um, folks in the community and it is an in-person program. So we aren't actually offering a virtual option at this point. All right. And then for those who might not have the time to take the course regularly, what are some other ways that they can benefit from the nutrition center if they are concerned about diabetes? Yeah, I I would invite anyone who is interested in taking charge of their health with or without prediabetes to consider a consult with one of our three registered dietitian nutritionists. The nice part about that is it truly is individualized support. So that whole assessment appointment is just trying to identify the unique goals and and what kind of support might be needed and to develop it like a truly tailored plan of care. And then from there, nutrition counseling includes a lot of troubleshooting, coaching, goal setting, and it's very flexible, very adaptable. It's not cookie cutter. You know, in session three, you learn about carbohydrates per se. It's it's really client-centered and client-driven depending on what the client values and what feels like a priority or what challenges they might be facing. What do you think is one of the biggest challenges in preventing diabetes in your role as a nutritionist and how do programs like these really help to address those challenges? So I think one of the big challenges with prediabetes specifically is that there still is such a huge lack of awareness. So fortunately, providers are starting to screen for this more and more often and even in younger folks, but it's so much more common than a lot of people think. And like I said before, most prediabetes is undiagnosed. So eight out of 10 people with prediabetes actually don't know that they have it. So that, that poses a pretty big challenge is that we put out a program and a lot of people might not think that it's for them because they might not be aware that they have some precursors or that they might fall on the spectrum of prediabetes. The number two is that behavior change is really hard and it can be really scary. Like we're talking about changing eating and changing routines. And, and that's, that's not an easy feat. And so we, we do what we can to ease people into that transition and to set them up for success. But, you know, it's, it's easy to sometimes feel discouraged and feel stuck. But to that, I would just say, don't be stuck alone and, and get the support that's needed. That's why we offer programs like this so that you can be unstuck. All right. And is there anything else that we should know about this program, about prediabetes itself, or about the Kendall Reagan Nutrition Center? Yeah, I think the the message that I feel that's really important to deliver to the community is that there's just a lot of misconception and stigma around prediabetes and diabetes. And and honestly, neither prediabetes nor diabetes have a look. So these conditions do not discriminate. So they occur in folks in both smaller and larger bodies and across all races and ethnicities. So the other thing that I want to put out there is that oftentimes people are scared to see a dietitian because they think that we're going to take away their favorite foods or shame them into losing weight, but that's actually far from what we do. So we really do strive to work alongside clients. Clients are driving the bus and we're the co-pilots here. So, you know, I think to just change the um, 
the negative connotation around negative uh, around needing nutrition counseling because it, it actually takes a lot of courage and strength to get support. And I think a lot of people are often surprised when they actually sit down and start these conversations with a dietitian about how empowering it actually is and how healing it can be. Something else that surprises a lot of folks about our clinic too is that we are weight inclusive. And so, you know, people are concerned about showing up and being told that they need to lose weight, but that's not our job. Our, our job is to listen to what is important to you and what your goals are and find ways to help you meet your goals. And just that a lot of people are surprised by the degree of healing that they might experience working through their relationship with food and working through body image stuff. So it's so much more than just eat this, don't eat that, you know, follow this plan, but actually opening up a conversation with a dietitian, realizing how food is just tied into so much mind, body, and spirit. It, it can be really surprising to people to see the depth of healing that can occur through nutrition counseling. All right. Thank you again so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Once again, that was Kaylin Garcia from the Kendall Reagan Nutrition Center at CSU. Now we'll be right back with national news. CSU presents Poetry Open Mic Night, welcoming poets of all levels of experience to come in and share their work and skill. The event is a great opportunity to hear poetry from young poets around Fort Collins. The event will be held every third Saturday of every month. If you're interested in reading your poetry live on air, visit tinyurl.com slash kcsupoetry. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to Thursday's National News. The U.S. Department of Justice is suing the state of Missouri for a law that lets citizens sue local police departments if they can prove law enforcement infringed upon their right to bear arms. According to Peter Granitz at National Public Radio, the law makes it impossible to enforce laws preventing convicted felons from owning guns and makes it complicated to enforce confiscation orders or federal gun registration laws. The complaint on this law says, quote, The overall purpose and effect of HB 85 are thus to nullify federal firearms laws and to effectively interfere with their enforcement, end quote. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland said in a statement that the law would by default interfere with criminal law enforcement in the state and that police should not be penalized for enforcing federal and local laws with fines. The following story discusses the officers on trial for the murder of George Floyd. The story is about one minute in length. J. Alexander Kung, one of the officers charged in the murder of George Floyd, says he was told to defer to Floyd's killer, former officer Derek Chauvin. According to Steve Karnowski and Tammy Weber at the Associated Press, 
Kyung said that the officers were trained to follow the lead of their senior officers. Since Kyung and the two other officers were newer to the force, they deferred to Chauvin. In his Wednesday testimony, Kung said that Thomas Lane, one of the other officers, suggested that Chauvin change the type of restraint used to hold Floyd, but this suggestion was rejected by Chauvin, leading to Floyd's death after he struggled to breathe for over nine minutes. Kyung said of Chauvin's decision, quote, He was my senior officer and I trusted his advice, end quote. Kung, Lane, and Tu Tao faced charges related to denying Floyd his right to medical care and failing to intervene. Chauvin was convicted of murder and manslaughter charges in the state court last year, and the other three will face separate court charges in June. The Florida House of Representatives passed a ban on abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. According to Gabriella Border at Reuters, the bill will move into the state Senate after a 78-29 to 29 vote approved the measure. The Florida abortion ban follows several similar bans in states across the U.S. as the Supreme Court prepares to hear a case on abortion that could decide the fate of reproductive health care in the United States. Florida currently has more lenient abortion policies than surrounding states, making it a hub for people seeking abortion from states that have stricter laws. The 15-week ban technically conflicts with Roe v. Wade, which says that people must have legal access to abortion up to 24 weeks when a fetus is typically viable. The only exceptions to the Florida bill currently involve cases where the mother could die giving birth or where a fatal abnormality is identified in the fetus. The U.S. Department of Education approved $415 million in student loans forgiveness for former students who are misled by their colleges and universities. According to Tori B. Powell at CBS News, the case involves almost 16,000 former college students and pushes the total loan forgiveness amount to around $2 billion for over 100,000 student loan borrowers. DeVry University, Westwood College, ITT Technical Institute, and the Minnesota School of Business and Globe University misled students based on claims of easy career access, claims they would cover bills after graduation if students failed to find work, and false data showing that their alumni found jobs sooner after graduating than other students going to different universities. Students at Corinthian Colleges and Marinello Schools of Beauty are also eligible for payments. Miguel Cardona, the U.S. Education Secretary said, quote, Students count on their colleges to be truthful. Unfortunately, today's findings show too many instances in which students were misled into loans at institutions or programs that could not deliver what they'd promised, end quote. That's all for national news. I'm Kuta Babcock, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Now we're going to hear from the Live and Local podcast. This is only a short clip from the episode, so be sure to check that out at kcsufm.com or on the KCSU app. On February 13th, I brought in Michael Gormley, also known as Blasty within the community. We talked about the past, present, and future of the Blast and Scrap, the community support community nonprofit that runs here in Fort Collins. For a quick rundown of the, the beginning for, uh, for those who weren't around, you know, Fort Collins in 2019, uh, it started in a nonprofit sponsored all donation recycled arts and crafts store called Who Gives a Scrap? So, uh, you already know my nickname and now you know the place. So blast and scrap. Mainly they had a, a fabric section that I saw from the window when I was hanging out at Gorehounds Playground, which actually is the first place that I put on a show was at Gorehounds Playground. I had talked to the owner who became quickly a friend, uh, Jeff Abbott and said, my band CB and the GGs, we do country bluegrass blues versions of punk songs would love to open up indie movie horror night. So we used to go there pretty regularly on Fridays and we would play 
20 minutes, horror punk covers turned into country bluegrass blues. So the cramps, misfits, you know, gun club, all that sort of stuff. It was because I was hanging out there that I saw who gives a scrap and I found out they were a nonprofit. It started in the back of that store as just like a donation based, no alcohol served, uh, no one turned away type thing. And it was a tough sell sometimes, but I'd get the bands to show up at five o'clock with me and we'd move all the arts and crafts racks and we'd turn it into a, a space that could fit about 80 to 100 people. The music was shut down there about a month before the pandemic. Uh, a neighbor complained, even though our shows were after they were closed. It kind of forced me to be creative. I started looking for other places to put on these shows and, you know, I couldn't be so strict in the, in the no alcohol thing, but I very much didn't want these shows at bars. And no matter what, uh, when I say all ages, always, I mean it music. I know I've like said this quote like a hundred times, but if music is subjugated to bars, then we're going to be stuck with dad rock for the rest of our lives. It's just, it's not right. If you want new forms of music, it's going to come from the youth. And the only thing that is good about having a 21 plus show is that musicians are at home who are underage writing a song about how much you suck. I, I have no reason to want to push forward in a 21 plus environment. It's not for me. Uh, I want to hear what's new. Uh, I certainly don't want to be one of those back in my day music was better kind of people. So I started like looking for other somewhat non-traditional venues. Wolverine Farm was the first one that took on a few of my shows, which is really great. And it's a, for the most part, it's a bookstore and a coffee shop. And they have an upstairs little place where they would do like you know, story reading and some other events, but nothing like a hardcore show. They let us do it. That was like the place for about three shows that I put on besides County Line Ranch. And then it became March 2020 and we had the great pause. And now we've been having lots of little intermittent pauses, but that was the great pause. And when things came back, you know, immediately I wanted to work with Empire Grange because I had heard about them. And, you know, besides being told a few times that that Green Day played there during the Kerplunk tour in you know the early 90s. I was like, this is this is a cool room. And it, it reminded me much about like growing up in North Jersey. And a lot of what I do uh, does come from that. Like I grew up in Strip Mall America and we played a lot of non-traditional venues. I played a lot of VFWs and Legion Halls in my first band, uh, Eastern Lights Represent. My first show was at a place called Skater's World, which was a roller rink that was transformed into a venue by night. And my first show was opening up for Catch-22 on their first show with their second lead singer. So there was like hundreds of people in the audience as I was a 15-year-old getting on stage for the first time. And it motivated us because we knew that if we were going to be opening up for them, that there was going to be a lot of people there, right? And it has a lot to do with why I pair up-and-coming bands with the artists that I pair them with, because I think it's going to motivate them. If I have a headliner, I mean, there's no such thing as a headliner at a local show to me, but like if I have the top-billed band something that you're clearly aspiring to be something like, you might go home and practice longer. You know, you guys are going to work on your set and you're going to make sure that like you're, you're ready to go. So I know I'm on topic, even though I kind of strayed from the topic, but right. But so like non-traditional venues are very important to me and any place that will let you have music, even if it's like acoustic music and poetry in between or live painters with it. Like I, I'm looking to do all sorts of kind of mixed matched collab shows. I went to numerous places in town. So we went to Empire Grange and it's kind of in a residential neighborhood. And those first two shows back went very, very well, except for the fact that we had, you know, 
kind of the the kibosh on hardcore shows after that. But like, what are you gonna do? I can. I was invited to go back to that space if I put on music that would be better for the neighborhood. So that's fine too. Uh, I guess I'll have to work with what I have in the directions that I can. Vindicate Foods. I mean, ascend from bug, right? Like, well, I was introduced by uh, Hannah Whitmire, and I think she sits on the board of directors of their nonprofit. And it was kind of how I, I pushed further in a mutual aid meets music kind of thing. Like, I always wanted the suggested donation door. I always wanted food, not bombs. I always wanted the free clothing thing as, like, these people were, were coming to me, and they wanted to to add to our shows, it was a, a no brainer. But once we got to Vindicate Foods and they were like, put out as much food as you want and you don't have to charge people to eat here. It was like, well, well now we're doing it. You know, it's not just a suggested donation door. Like you can come into this parking lot and you can get free music, free clothing and free food. So what's more community than that? I mean, if you're, if you're lonely, if you don't have money, if you are hungry and these are all things that make people isolate and end up living in their own heads in whatever quarters that they have available to themselves. And this is a place where you can come and you can share in the art with each other and you make those connections. I mean, uh, it bears repeating music saved my life many, many times. I had no place to live in 2017 and a handful of really good friends kept me on the road following the band Ween because I knew I didn't have anything else. And I mean, it meant everything to me. And it gave me the strength to to get my life together and you know put down the bottle and about a year after i did that i started building all this community through music is why i'm still alive and if i can do any bit to help somebody else find the exact same thing i will so yeah so we did like over 30 shows at vindicate foods i think we had like 80 something bands almost every single friday and saturday from uh late spring into uh mid-autumn I mean, that, you were at the before last show. It was, I was like mid-October. It was so cold. My feet by the end of the night were just frozen to my socks. We found out who was really hardcore that night. <laughs> I'm trying to th think who closed that. Was that the Wolf Sinister Pig closed. Sinister Pig closed. Their only show of the year, so I told them they should close. Okay, yeah. That was it. I had a lot of fun at that show. It was a good show. It was a good show. And the next day was the the documentary. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes. That was more during the day, though, wasn't it? That was a daytime. That was a well, I like Saturday afternoons because just more hours for music and more bands. I mean, those Vindicate shows averaged six bands. So that's just because I would have four bands on Friday within like three hours, and I'd have like six to eight bands on Saturdays. I think by the end of it, I had nine bands on one show. Uh, about six bands averaged throughout all those events. Two tents, side by side. One band's always setting up while the other one's playing. and just ran it like a music festival. It's weird. When I first started doing things like that, there's some people in town that are just like, it's too much. Just do it traditional. Mike, three bands. Just two bands is even good enough. Like, why do you push yourself? And in the beginning, I was trying to compete with Pinball Jones, right? I was in an arts and crafts store, and I didn't have a bar. They had pinball and a bar. I don't want a bar, but I still know that's something that people are going to want to go for, right? So I would set up arts and crafts tables, and then I started hiring comedians for, between the bands. started hiring circus performers to swing while bands are playing, because I always wanted to have circus performers swing over my head while I'm playing music, right? And that kind of turned into the, how far can I push this thing? And when we do have an opportunity, when somebody does say, okay, like you can have a home here for the time being, I will do everything within that short span of time to get our 
time's worth, right? So if I can put eight bands within five hours under two tenths, and it's weird, you'll like see these waves and sometimes I'll do it on purpose. I'll just like, I'll couple bands of bands that are of a similar style, but then like slowly gravitate into new styles of music throughout the night. And it's like, you'll get like 50 people here in the beginning and then none of them are there at the end. And there's 80 people total at the end. I think it's just like a couple leftovers from the start of the show. I mean, if five hours of music is too much for you. Okay. But like me, I had a chance. So if I have a chance, I'm going to use the chance to like, you know, also get as many new bands as possible. I mean, that's the thing is like, sometimes when I'm doing more traditional venues, especially when I'm building a relationship with them, you very much want to knock that out of the park and you want to show them what you can do. Right. But if I have like a parking lot and I could do whatever I want, I love taking risks. I love booking people that nobody's ever heard of and throwing them right in the middle so that people have to watch them because they love the opener and they love the closer, right? I want to get bands from out of town. I want to work with more people. I mean, the more we can spread, the better. Yes, absolutely. I love the uh, whatever we want to do, we can do kind of mentality. And yeah. that's with all of these kind of community support tab tables as well. Like you've got a lot of people tabling and doing... I mean, I've seen face painting. Uh, I've seen you talked about the the food and the clothes. But uh, what other like, well, we, what other kind of tables have you had at these events? What are I've had a handful of live painters, which I dig. Uh, we had a, a resident live painter, and he'll be back at some point, David Este, and he would. And it's funny. So like David. Uh, People have heard this story before if you've listened to me talk about him, but he was stabbed at a bad brain show at CBGB back in the early 80s, right? But like, so he's, he's been around, right? He's a very calm guy. And he would live paint the bands in the back of Who Gives a Scrap. And I would put him right next to the soundboard as like the last level of protection because we didn't have any barriers, right? So like... <laughs> He would just sit there and like the mosh pit would come swing at him. He would just like stiff arm. Sometimes people would like get upset with him. And it's like, well, first off, like we can't, if it wasn't for him, our equipment would have been busted a long, long time ago. And he kind of took that as like a badge of honor. Like I get to live paint these hardcore shows, but also I'm kind of the bouncer to make sure that like thousands of dollars of equipment doesn't get ruined. It's an interesting position that he holds in between. Yeah. <laughs> But also at the end of the night, if you're interested, he's got a painting of your band. And, you know, the deal that I struck with him, because I, I don't want bands who are playing our show to have to pay for anything. Right. But at the same time, he's an artist and he should be able to make his worth as well. That the deal was if he sold them the painting that they owned 100 percent of the rights to it. So they could use it for an album insert or a cover or, you know, the back for the listing of songs or whatever it is. So ended up working out beneficially for everybody. Nice. Uh, so, you know, we've been progressing through these uh, these pop-up venues. And and the Chippers is the newest one. And Chippers is the newest it one. It went really well. Well, it's, eight, it's 830 North. I mean, there, there are Chippers that aren't venues. So, like, it's not just really a rebranding. It's, it, it's legitimately its own place. And I'm excited about this one this Wednesday, which is 2454 North in Greeley. First off, because we've never had a show in Greeley. But it's like... It's a different feeling there than it is at 830 North as well. I mean, it's still like great sound run by the Mishawaka, but it's like each one of these venues is going to have a unique feel, which allows for me to kind of build this little mini festival inside to be, you know, crafted towards its, you know, 
its own vibe. To hear more about Blast and Scrap, visit KCSUFM.com for the full episode under podcasts. We'll be right back, but stay tuned here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins for the Rocky Mountain Review. Support for KCSU comes from Munchies Supermarket. Munchies is located near the Campus West shopping area on West Elizabeth Street. Open 7 a.m. to 12 a.m. seven days a week. Munchies offers snacks, food, personal care items, smoking accessories, and more. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. In women's basketball, the team is 16-7, and winning their last two games, Utah State 86-83 and San Jose State 84-70. Their next game is Thursday night for the Border War Pinkout game. In men's basketball, the team is 20-3 and with their last two games against Fresno State 65-50, then Boise State in an OT victory. 77 to 74. Their next game is on Thursday night against New Mexico. In women's basketball, the team started their season at the Eastern Classic. They faced off against San Diego, Ole Miss, Dixie State, and Cal, with their only win being against Dixie State, 12 to 0. In track and field, the men's and women's teams competed in two different events during the weekend, the John Kirby Invitational and the Iowa State Classic. The Rams came home with multiple podium finishers and some record setters. Congratulations to Ryan Beermeer, Tom Willems, Liam Mathers, Megan Mooney, Jacob Burtman, Tom Oates, Lauren Gale, Michaela Williams, Lexi Keller, Cameron Ross, and everyone who gave it their all in the last two competitions. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csurams.evenue.net to get your student tickets for men's basketball, women's basketball, softball, and more. My name is Eliza Drotar. This has been your RMR Sports Report. This is Play Like a Girl, a bi-weekly podcast about Colorado State University's female athletes and sports. This is Carson Lane, your host and current student athlete here at Colorado State coming to you from KCSU. In each episode, I plan to talk about Colorado State's female athletes and sports updates to inspire us to stay updated, involved, and passionate about supporting our female athletes. Since we last met, the women's basketball team has battled in Moby Arena. As of February 10th, the Rams have accomplished a 15-7 overall season, 6-6 conference record, and are currently ranked 7th in the Mountain West Conference. Although Colorado State isn't taking the lead in the Mountain West, we have seen some advanced game execution throughout the season. Rewinding all the way back to January 9th, Colorado State took on San Jose State University. Only three games into the Mountain West Conference, the Rams managed to take the win against the Spartans with a blowout win of 90-64 right here in Moby Arena. This was the season's largest lead win during conference play, beating the Spartans by 26 points. 
Now, as the season has continued, there has been high levels of excitement and anticipation for the Rams. Most recently, on February 9th, Colorado State University battled Utah State University in a nail-biter down to the last seconds of the matchup. The Rams ultimately brought another win to Mobile Arena, winning 86-83. This win couldn't have been possible without the hard work of graduate student and guard Upe Atosu. In the last five seconds of the game, Atosu found herself at the free-throw line, only inches away from securing the win. Without doubt, Atosu pulled through, making two successful free throws and bringing home the win for Colorado State. Reflecting on their most recent game, the Rams are going to have to bring more to Moby Arena on February 17th for the first Border War battle of the season against the University of Wyoming. The Border War is an important game for the Rams because Wyoming is currently ranked 4th in the Mountain West Conference. Winning this Border War battle will hopefully bring Colorado State's rankings up and set the team up for the upcoming Mountain West Conference Championships. The tournament will take place on March 6th through March 9th in Las Vegas, Nevada at the Thomas and Mack Center. The Border War and Mountain West Tournament will be broadcasted on the Mountain West Network. Now shifting our focus from the court to the diamond, the Colorado State women's softball team is back in season. The team's first debut of the 2022 season will take place in Fullerton, California in the Easton Classic Tournament. The tournament will take place from February 11th to February 13th. Unfortunately, this isn't the only road tournament that the Rams will have this season. After the Easton Classic Tournament, they will head to Denton, Texas for the Tracy Bird Classic Tournament from February 18th to February 20th. Following that, the Rams will hit the road again for Phoenix, Arizona for the Lopes Up Classic from February 25th to February 27th. The first at-home debut for the Rams softball team will be right here in Fort Collins, Colorado on March 4th as we host the Colorado Classic. This tournament will take place from March 4th to March 6th. You can stay up to date on Colorado State softball season by following along with their social media, their Instagram page at CSU Softball, and their Twitter page at Capital CSU Softball. As for today's episode, that is it, Ramley. Thank you for listening. I am Carson Lane, your host, and this is Play Like a Girl. Until next time. we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to Tech News for Thursday. Spotify announced on Wednesday that they plan to acquire Chartable and Podsites, two major podcast marketing platforms. According to Ashley Carmen at The Verge, Spotify intends to use the analytics tools offered by these platforms, such as tags to track who's listening, who heard different ads while listening, and whether or not the listener interacted with the ad. Spotify intends to embrace these tools within music and see how non-premium members interact with advertisements on the platform. Spotify said of the acquisition, quote, These tools will make it easier for publishers to turn audience insights into action and expand their listenership while ultimately growing their business, end quote. In the past few years, Spotify also acquired other podcasting platforms like Wooshka, Pods, and Locker Room, which the company bought last year. 
United States Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm tours South Carolina State University's nuclear engineering program Thursday to better understand the funding needs for STEM programs at historically black colleges and universities. According to Meg Kinnard at the Associated Press, this new funding follows President Joe Biden's infrastructure package, which has faced issues in Congress despite a Democrat majority. Granholm will also speak to HBCU leaders during her visit to get a full understanding of these programs, and she'll visit the wind test facility at Clemson University, which is also in South Carolina. Last year, Clemson announced new funding towards research and other opportunities while at Howard University, an HBCU in Washington, D.C. Senators plan to introduce a bill that would focus on new safety rules for social media. According to Shannon Bond at National Public Radio, these new rules emphasize policies that would keep children safe online after a series of hearings with Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg and a Facebook whistleblower led senators to believe the company was prioritizing profit over child safety. In a statement, Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut said, quote, The Kids Online Safety Act would finally give kids and their parents the tools and safeguards they need to protect against toxic content and hold big tech accountable for deeply dangerous algorithms, end quote. Users under the age of 16 would have default settings to prevent other users from stalking them and prevent them from seeing content involving addictive substances or other dangerous materials. The new program would also focus on preventing child exploitation through social media, and platforms would be required to create parental supervision programming and reporting channels. That's all for Tech News. I'm Coda Babcock, and now for the weather. Today we saw foggy conditions in the morning with a high of 35 degrees and a low of 10 degrees. Friday will warm up with sunny skies and a high of 46 with a low of 21. Saturday will continue the trend with a high of 53 and a low of 29, once again with sunny skies. Sunday, expect partly cloudy skies with a high of 54 and a low of 25. And Monday, we'll see snow showers with a high of 27 and a low of negative 3. Tuesday will continue to get colder with cloudy skies and a high of 12 with a low of negative 4. And for Wednesday, be sure to tune in to Tuesday's episode of the Rocky Mountain Review from 4 to 5 in the afternoon on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, David Jemuth, Bailey Liverman, Hannah Copeland, Bryn McCall, Jack Balsley, London Shell, Hannah Hitchcock, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Bridget Vandell, Eliza Droder, Dylan King, Michelle Ellis, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.